A couple celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary were at a reception held in their honor. They were posing for photos when all of a sudden the husband burst out in tears. The wife is posing. She's smiling from ear to ear. The husband's weeping. It's an odd picture. She turns to her husband and she asks, honey, what's wrong? Why in the world are you crying? He answers, well, 50 years ago today, your daddy put a shotgun to my head and said that if I didn't marry you, he'd see to it that I spend the next 50 years in jail. And it suddenly dawned on me today, if I'd listened to him, I'd be a free man tomorrow. <laughs> Tonight, Peter teaches us to have a no regrets marriage. Follow God's blueprint and 50 years later, you'll be glad you tied the knot. He begins chapter 3 by addressing our wives. He provides them with instruction in three areas, their boundaries, their behavior, and their beauty. Wives, pay attention. This is for you. Verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. God's plan for the Christian home calls for an ordered equality. Both partners are equal in value, but they're different in roles. Women are in no wise inferior to men. In fact, it's my observation that just the opposite is true. Most women are smarter than most men. If the survival of the fittest were actually true, women would be leading men around on dog collars by now. God has appointed that in the home and in the church, the man should lead and the woman should follow. And in adhering to this blueprint, we paint a wonderful picture of Christ's relationship with his church. The Greek word translated submissive is the term hupotasso, which means to arrange under or to work within a set of boundaries. The husband is to pursue the calling that God has laid upon his life. And it's his pursuits that then become the boundaries for the rest of the family. The wife is then free to do whatever God leads her to do as long as she arranges her pursuits around the direction in life that her husband has taken. It was Ruth Graham, Billy's wife, who wrote, The best advice I can give to unmarried girls is to marry someone you don't mind adjusting to. God tailors the wife to fit the husband, not the husband to fit the wife. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. That even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Hey, wives need to realize that the only time a woman successfully changes a man is when he's a baby with a dirty diaper. Actually, the old saying is true. Women marry men hoping they'll change, while men marry women hoping they'll never change. And both end up disappointed. Yet there were women in Peter's day who were right in their desire to change their husband. Their husband needed to be changed. When the gospel reached their family, they had embraced Jesus, but he had not. They were now believers married to unbelievers. And oh, the stress that this placed on their marriage. These ladies had fallen in love with Jesus. He was the most important thing in their life. And yet they were unable to share him with their spouse. 
They wanted desperately for their husband also to come to know Jesus. These desperate housewives witnessed to their husband constantly. They were putting little gospel tracts in his lunchbox. And they were pushing and conjoling him. They were trying to nag him into heaven. The only problem is, is that few people get nagged into heaven. Hey, before we go on, let me say a word to those of you who are single. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 is clear. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. If you're saved and you seek to marry someone who is not a believer, it's not only a sin, it's foolishness. It's going to cause great trouble and grief. I've heard it said, if a child of God marries a child of the devil, then the child of God is sure to have trouble with his father-in-law. And no one wants that. If you're a single Christian, choose your mate wisely. Make sure that they're a committed Christian. But what if you've already made this mistake? Or what if you embraced Jesus after you were married and your spouse didn't? He or she needs to change or they, they might just go to hell. So how do you change a spouse? Well, it's not by nagging and badgering and manipulating. A Christian spouse needs to learn to change their non-Christian mate, not with words, but without them. By their loving and godly and winsome conduct. Peter says you'll change your mate when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. The Greek word translated chaste or hagios means pure. It means holy. You change your spouse not by meddling but by modeling goodness and godliness. It was in 1805 when a missionary from the British Missionary Society preached to the Indians of upstate New York. After his message, Chief Red Jacket told the missionary, We will wait and see what kind of effect your preaching has upon your own people. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less inclined to cheat Indians, we will then consider again what you've said. Ladies, this may just be the approach that Chief Stubbornheart, that one that you live with, is taking toward your newfound faith. When he sees the gospel change your life, then maybe he'll pay attention to what it can do for his own. Notice verse 3. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair or wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Ladies, you can spruce yourself up. You can deck yourself out. But nothing will quite excite your husband as much as a gentle and a quiet and a submissive spirit. Let me caution us against taking Peter's instructions here to an extreme. There are Christians who believe that it's a sin for a lady to style her hair, wear jewelry, or wear fashionable clothes. This is not what Peter is addressing. Ladies, you can look nice. In fact, we prefer that you look nice. You can dress mod, but always modest. Just don't stress your outward attractiveness over your inward beauty. That's Peter's point. Here's a great test for the ladies. Do you spend more time in the mirror than you do in God's word? Beauty of the heart is what pleases God. 
Note Peter refers to spiritual beauty as incorruptible beauty. I mean, even with an unlimited budget and the best plastic surgeon available, physical beauty is still corruptible beauty. In other words, a man who marries a woman for her good looks is like the guy who buys the house for the paint job. Eventually, the paint's going to chip and flake and fade. You should do yourself a favor and marry a godly woman. Spiritual beauty never fades. Verse 5 For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Sarah called her husband Lord. She treated him as the king of her castle. And he loved her in return. Realize Women need love and men need respect. That's how we work. Women want love and men want respect. Ladies, treat your husband with respect and he'll lasso the moon for you. There's nothing he won't do for you. Two politicians were embroiled in this fiery debate with each other. One shouted at his foe, What about those special interest groups that control and manipulate you? The politician who was under attack, he shouted back. He said, Now you wait just one minute. Leave my wife out of this. (laughs) A wife does have a powerful sway over her husband. And a smart wife uses that influence to build him up not tear him down. Now Peter comes to the husbands and he provides us three commands for how to treat our wives. Dwell with your wife, understand your wife, and honor your wife. Verse 7, husbands likewise dwell with them. And I can hear some of the husbands now. Well, I got this one down. I live in the same house and sleep in the same bed and we even eat at the same table. I'm dwelling with my wife. Hey, but living under the same roof isn't necessarily dwelling with your wife. I mean, too many husbands are at home but in body only. Their mind stays glued to the TV or to the computer or to their garage. Men, your home is more than a hotel you check into at night. God wants you involved and engaged with both your wife and kids. Dwell with your wife. But dwell with understanding. Men, you need to get to know your wife. You should make a study of her. In fact, this can be a lifelong pursuit. You need to spend time with her. You need to talk with her, not just at her. It's been said, every husband needs to know what makes his wife tick, what tickles her, and what ticks her off. A Harvard University study revealed that the average married couple spends 37 minutes in communication. (laughs) But not 37 minutes a day. 37 minutes a week. On a recent flight, I picked up one of those Delta magazines that had a report on the habits of pet owners. It said the average dog owner talks two hours a week to his dog. That means we talk more to our dog than we do to our spouse. Hey, to understand our wives, we've got to communicate. 
We've got to talk and we've got to be willing to listen. He also commands us giving honor to the wife. Husband, respect your wife. Give her the honor that she deserves. She makes a vital contribution to the family. We need to treat our wives special around the house. We need to brag on her in public. We need to compliment her on the job that she's done and is doing with the kids. From time to time, we need to reward her with a day off or at least buy her some flowers. Man, you know what it means to be rewarded and appreciated for a job well done? Well, it means even more for your wife when it comes from her husband. Peter says, honor her as to the weaker vessel. Now, despite all of the feminist rhetoric and propaganda we hear today, most women are more gentle and more fragile physically and emotionally than are most men. There are certainly exceptions, but generally it's true. Peter calls it weaker. But women are weaker only in the sense that a crystal goblet is weaker than a plastic coffee mug. The mug is heavier. It's more durable. It's easier to knock about. But it's the finery and the fragility of the crystal that makes it more valuable. Much more valuable. You see, a wife brings a tenderness and a gentleness to the family that the husband lacks. It is her weakness that makes her more valuable. Peter is telling us to honor our wives for their sensitivity. You know, when a female china back crab molts or sheds her shell, it takes several days for a new shell to harden. And this leaves her extremely vulnerable. And yet for those several days, the male crab covers her with his body. She attaches herself to his underbelly, and he literally carries her around until she's once again able to protect herself. And men, there are times in life when your wife becomes particularly vulnerable. She gets a little crabby. And she needs your help. She needs you to cover her and to carry her. This is what it means for us to honor the wife as the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life. Isn't that interesting? We're head of our home and yet we're heirs together. Your wife is not just your wife. She's God's girl. Don't just treat her like a servant. You need to treat her as a sister in Christ. You might be the head of your home, but you're heirs together. And if you don't honor your wife, that makes you a heir head. Get it? Heir head. We need to honor our wives, and for a very good reason, that your prayers may not be hindered. Have you ever tried to pray after you've been fighting with your wife? And particularly when it was your fault? Oh, my. The only prayer that gets off the ground is a prayer of confession. Man, when there's friction between Kathy and I, there's static on the line with God. I need to repent. Well, verse 8 says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love his brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Now, remember, our writer is Peter. 
This is the man who took the sword and tried to split open the skull of the high priest henchman who had come to arrest Jesus. Malchus swerved his head at the last second, and Peter clipped off his ear. This was sword-swinging Pete. Now, this same Peter has changed his heart. He's had a change of tune. Now he says, don't return evil for evil, but rather bless those who revile you. An incredible change had occurred in Peter's mentality. You know, I'm sure it started after his attack on Malchus. You remember what Jesus did? He reached down into the dirt and he picked up the severed ear and he miraculously reattached it to the man's head. Jesus returned good for evil. He returned blessing for cursing. In the weeks that followed, I'm sure that Peter learned the power of love. They beat Jesus. They reviled him. They nailed him to the cross. But though he could have, Jesus didn't retaliate. Jesus took all of their hate and their venom and he absorbed it. He retaliated in love. And in doing so, Jesus won our forgiveness. He won our hearts. Peter has always wanted to follow Jesus, but now he's learned that the path of following Jesus leads through the cross. Verse 10, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Be careful, for often we return evil for evil with our tongues. We need to think before we speak. Remember this little acrostic, think, T-H-I-N-K. T, is it true? When you hear something, ask yourself, is this true? H, is it helpful? I, is it inspiring? Is it encouraging? Before you say anything, is this going to be encouraging to someone else? N, is it necessary? Do I really need to say this? K, is it kind? Hey, if it's not true or helpful or inspiring or necessary or kind, then zip, zip your lips. Don't you say it. Think before you speak. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Years ago, in the early days of the Microsoft explosion, the New Yorker magazine published Bill Gates' personal email address in their magazine. Overnight, he was swamped with messages. Didn't take long for Bill to install some filtering software that sent through the important messages but disposed of all the junk. Evidently, Bill Gates could only handle so many messages at a time, but not God. You understand, God never gets swamped with messages. He personally handles and responds to each request and each petition and each intercession and each praise and each prayer that's sent to him. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. Verse 13, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Hey, if our home is with Jesus, if our treasure is laid up in heaven, if our citizenship is in the kingdom of God, and our life is hid with Christ in God, then what can anyone on earth do to us that would really harm us? Nothing. 
My friend Geller, when he once sent me a, a fax that read, your stock in heaven is rising, invest everything. That's a great tip. When we invest in heaven, there's nothing that can really happen to us here on earth that, that will do any eternal harm. He says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Are you ready? Do you know your Bible? Hey, are you ready to share the gospel at a moment's notice? Can you give a defense to everyone who asks you for the hope that you have in Christ? Once my brother, he went downtown to do some street witnessing. And he approached a guy who was on the street. This guy was kind of wearing a turban and he kind of had a long flowing robe on. And Ken walked up to him and he started telling him about Jesus. But the guy was prepared. The guy was more prepared than my brother. As a matter of fact, the fellow he was trying to witness to started quoting scripture to my brother. But he twisted it and he took it out of context. And he ended up painting Ken into a corner. And then the fellow reached into his cloak and he pulled out a New Testament. And he shook it in my brother's face. And he asked him, he said, how did David kill Goliath? And then the man answered his own question. He killed him with his own sword. And he said, that's what I've just done with you. And, he, and my brother says it was at that moment that he decided to go to seminary and take the time to learn why he believed what he believed. And as a result today, Ken is always ready to give a defense of the hope that he has in Jesus. We need to study our Bibles. We need to always be ready. Verse 16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as an evildoer, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if, the, if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. You know, Peter says that not all suffering is created equal. It's a noble thing to stand for Jesus and be persecuted. It's a shameful thing to suffer for an evil act. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Oh, Jesus suffered for a noble cause. He died in our place once and for all, the just for the unjust. Jesus died that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Remember, there was 120 years of divine long-suffering prior to the flood. Noah warned and worked for 12 decades for 120 years. Don't ever say that God isn't patient. He wants us to repent. In Ephesians 4, we're told that after Jesus died on the cross, his spirit descended into Hades. Now, not to hellfire or to torment, to the, to the torment of Hades, but he descended to Abraham's bosom. This is the place spoken of in Luke chapter 16. This is the abode of the believing dead. You remember prior to the ascension of Christ, Hades was like a duplex. There was the side of torment, but there was the other side where the believers waited for the Savior to come and free them. 
And it was there that Jesus preached. He preached in Hades so that both sides of the duplex heard his preaching. They all heard of God's wonders, God's grace, Jesus' work on the cross. So that to those who had believed in the Old Testament, Jesus' sermon in Hades was a validation that God had delivered on his promised salvation. But to the disobedient spirits in Hades, those who had rejected God's promise, it was confirmation that their punishment was just. When Jesus preached in Hades, he validated the faith of those who had believed, but he also validated the judgment of those who had refused. Peter continues to speak about the flood in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. You remember only eight People heeded God's warning and boarded the boat. The history of the human race was salvaged by eight souls. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. You know, today, the flood of Noah has tremendous historical and geological relevance. This story is attested to by almost every ancient culture. Every society you look into on the earth, you'll find a corrupted perhaps, but a compatible account of a worldwide flood. And the best explanation of the fossil record is the massive effects of a global flood. But you see, the flood's relevance isn't only historical and geological, it's also typological. Verse 21, for there is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. In other words, it's not water baptism he's talking about. That does little more than, than what a bath does. It's the initiation, the baptism of the Spirit, where he engrafts us and baptizes us into the body of Christ. That's what cleanses, cleanses us inwardly. That's what changes us from the inside out. And you see, the Spirit does for us what the flood did for its survivors. You remember the flood, it purged a sinful earth and it provided Noah and his family with a new life, a new start. And this is what Jesus does for us. This is what happens when the Spirit comes into our lives. He purges our hearts and he creates for us a new start and a new life. He says, and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Notice, now that Jesus is risen and exalted to God's right hand, all that he died to cleanse is now under his authority. All creation will ultimately answer to Jesus. Chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. In other words, persecution, suffering physically for Jesus' sake, it has a purifying effect on God's people. We don't like it when it comes. But suffering always purifies the church. It seems that persecution crystallizes our commitment. Being faced with physical loss always forces people to take a stand. I remember when the communists took over in China and the missionaries left. People were wondering about the future of Christ Christianity in China. Well, when we finally were able to get a glimpse back into China, we saw that the church had grown exponentially. 
Millions upon millions of Chinese had given their life to Christ. The persecution had actually purified the church and emboldened its witness and its expansion. That's what always happens. Persecution actually encourages the believer, verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. I mean, once you pay a price for following Jesus, a seriousness sets in in your life. From then on, there's no turning back. You're all in. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in the lewdness and lust and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Man, Peter said, we've wasted enough of our life on indulging the flesh. Now let's make our time count for serving Jesus Christ. He says, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. I mean, I'm sure you've already started to hear it. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably started to hear your friends make comments. Oh, he's no fun anymore. Oh, she used to be cool. What happened to her? Your former friends start to snicker. But understand, in the end, the joke's on them Verse 5, for they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God is always the one who gets the last laugh. He says, for this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. In the Old Testament, the gospel was preached in seed form. The name of Jesus may not have been mentioned, but God promised a deliverer from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way through Malachi. He says that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. In other words, folks living in Old Testament times were judged just as they are today. Did they put their faith in God's coming promise? They may or may not have known Jesus specifically, but they knew that God had promised salvation. And did they put their faith in that promise? That was how the Old Testament saints were judged. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. I love that. Love will cover a multitude of sins. You know, Evan Gaddis is not the most graceful outfielder on the planet. If you've watched the Braves... Evan Gaddis is capable of making an error or two. He's kind of awkward out there at times. But the Braves coaches, they like him in the lineup. You know why? Because the guy can hit. He can hit. He can rake with the best of them. And in baseball, hitting covers a multitude of errors. And this is what Peter means. Perhaps you're a bumbling, stumbling saint. Man, you got some rough edges. But guess what? If you love a lot, God will find a place for you on his team. If you love a lot, God will make sure you're in his lineup. You might not be the most skilled or gifted. But if you love a lot, God has a place for you. He packs his lineup with heavy-hitting lovers. Love will cover a multitude of sins. Verse 9, 
Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold or the multicolored grace of God. God has given to each of us certain spiritual gifts and each of us needs to use our gift. Hey, remember when it comes to spiritual gifts, you use it or you lose it. And notice the gift that's mentioned here in verse 9, the gift of hospitality. You know, some people just have a supernatural gift of making other people feel at home and loved and accepted and wanted. One Sunday, a man was on his way to church when he stopped to pick up a hitchhiker. The hitchhiker, he came to church that day and he was invited by another member to lunch. Still another member took him back home that afternoon and allowed him to bathe and shave and gave him a fresh change of clothes. Finally, someone else from the church bought him a bus ticket home. Well, weeks later, the hitchhiker sent a letter to the man who had stopped to give him the lift. Enclosed was a newspaper clipping which read, Man turns himself in for murder. Turns out this hitchhiker had been on the run. He'd robbed a store and he'd killed a teenage boy in the process. But it was because of the church's kindness that he had been drawn to God. He wanted to be forgiven. And he knew that his part in repentance was to turn himself in and admit what he'd done. You know, the Lord works many a miracle through the gift of hospitality. You know, I wonder if it's not true that more folks have been won to Christ through the gift of hospitality than through any other gift. Verse 11 if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Here's another spiritual gift. It's speaking God's word. Man, if you have it, then speak what he tells you to speak. We need God's word, not more opinions. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Good deeds and spiritual gifts coupled, coupled together do great things for God. They minister to men and they bring glory to God. Now verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Don't be surprised by persecution. Don't act like you were never warned. Hey, if this wicked world nailed Jesus to a tree, did you expect it to roll out the red carpet for his followers? Don't consider it strange. I think all Christians need to warm up to the idea of fiery trials for their coming. And we should be able to rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You know, Christians are asked to share in Christ's momentary sufferings so that they will also share in his eternal glory. And we may suffer today, but we are going to rejoice forevermore. He says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. I mean, guys, following Jesus means more than just joy and peace. It also means drawing some fire from this world. It can mean being treated unfairly. It can mean suffering for Christ's sake. 
Don't think it's strange when these things come. It's been said, no pain, no palm. No thorns, no throne. No gall, no glory. No cross, no crown. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. If you suffer as a believer, you glorify God. But if you're ridiculed for evil or for sticking your nose in other people's business, then that's shameful. Again, not all suffering is created equal. He says, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. I have no doubt the biggest obstacle to the evangelization of the world is the selfishness and hypocrisy found in the church. You know, we can't draw people out of the darkness if we as Christians are asleep in the light. Judgment, God's sorting should start in the house of God, in the church. He says, and if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? I mean, if God isn't squeamish about disciplining his own children, then don't think for a second he won't hammer this wicked world. Verse 18, now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? <laughs> if Christians limp into heaven with a poor witness, where does that leave the unbelievers? We owe it to a lost world to shine clearly and brightly for Jesus' sake. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. You know, some Christians encounter opposition and they assume that they missed God's will. Oh, I ran into a little persecution. I ran into some trouble. Man, I must have missed, I must have missed the will of God. That's not necessarily true. Here, here Peter talks about those who suffer according to the will of God. Do you know that the suffering may just be the will of God for you? Don't think it a strange thing when you fall into fiery trials. Chapter 5. The elders who are among you I exhort. I who am a fellow elder. Now notice Peter classifies himself as a fellow elder. Elder. And this is why it's preposterous for Roman Catholicism to refer to Peter as the first pope. I mean, Peter never exalted himself as Pontiff Maximus or high priest. To the contrary, he thought of himself out of his own mouth. He calls himself a fellow elder. And he says, and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, though he followed at a distance, Peter still was there. He still followed when Jesus was tried and scourged and nailed to the cross, he was an eyewitness of Jesus' sufferings. And he was also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Peter saw Jesus in his suffering, but he also saw him in his glory. You remember when? Well, certainly after his resurrection, but also on Mount Hermon at what we call the transfiguration in Matthew 17, verse 2, we're told that Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. In other words, his humanity was peeled back. And the disciples got a peek at his glory. 
And these experiences humbled Peter. He wasn't first among the elders. He was a fellow elder and a witness. And Peter encourages his peers in the ministry. He says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. You see, good shepherds, they tend and they mend. They feed and they lead. A faithful shepherd is constantly vigilant. He protects the vulnerable flock from thieves and from predators. And we're to serve as overseers, he says. The word elder actually means overseer. A pastor or an elder sees the big picture and thinks ahead and looks out for God's people. He should be several steps ahead of the rest of the flock. He should anticipate what the needs are going to be. He should safeguard the flock from any danger. You know, there was a time when the elders of our church, when we spent most of our time kind of pouring over financial statements and making business decisions. But today, we've developed other structures to handle those issues. And we've freed up the elders to do what God has called them to do, which is to minister to God's people. At Calvary Chapel, the job of an elder is to handle benevolence and exercise discipline and pray for the people and try to stay in contact with the sheep and their needs. We're to serve as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Oh, if you've got a leader who's being forced or coerced into serving only out of duty, you've got a problem. A leader should want to serve. And not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. I mean, financial reward should never be the goal of a spiritual leader. The elders of our church should serve voluntarily and eagerly nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. An elder or pastor should never be pushy, should never be manipulative. We should never throw our weight around or seldom have to pull rank. Leaders in the church should earn the trust of the people of the church by their godly character, and they should lead by example. And then verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears... You will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. There is a crown. There is a blessing for those who lead well. Notice elders and pastors here are called under shepherds. You know, Jesus is the chief shepherd. We're the under shepherd. And he promises a crown to those leaders in the church who serve his interests faithfully. He says, now likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This Greek word that's translated resist, it means to oppose. It's kind of a sobering thing to realize that God lines up on the other side of the ball from the proud. He opposes the proud. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Hey, humble yourself before God and he'll see to it that you get exalted. On the other hand, get puffed up and God will make sure he lets the air out of you one way or the other. Verse 7, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. We should always turn our cares into prayers. A friend of mine once told me, Sandy, always turn your cares over to God before you go to bed at night. He's going to be up all night anyway. And it's true. 
Remember the Psalm, Psalm 121, verse 3? He who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Be sober, be vigilant, get ready, be on guard. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Reminds me of the female lion tamer. She was a beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous lady. And she had this wonderful way with the lions. With just a flick of the whip, she could make the lions come over to her and, and they would just kind of lay their head down in her lap. And just kind of gently nuzzle up and cuddle up with her. Well, one day in the show, when the show was over, this heckler, he shouted out, he said, Oh, that's nothing. I can do that. The ringmaster charged him. He said, okay, if you can do that, just step into the ring. The man shouted back, sure, just get that lion out of there first. <laughs> In other words, he wanted to nuzzle up against the lion tamer. You see, here, here's the problem with many Christians. We cuddle up with the lion. We cuddle up with the lion. That's our problem. We accommodate the devil in his influence. We don't run from temptation like we should. We invite it, in fact. Hey, we need to resist the devil in Jesus' name. You know, I've been told that the roaring lion is not the one that you worry about. He's the decoy. When Bambi is walking down the path, just prancing along, suddenly the roaring lion, he jumps out and he snarls and he growls and he makes these fierce sounds that he's learned how to make over the years. But all he can do is roar. He's old. He's toothless. His teeth have fallen out. His claws have been pared. Oh, he still remembers how to look menacing. But he's as harmless as a kitty cat. But you see the old roaring lion. He strikes fear in the heart of little Bambi. And so she spins around and she runs off in the wrong direction. She flees in the opposite direction. Right into the jaws of the young lions who are sitting there waiting for the kill. Hey, Satan is the roaring lion. He's toothless. Jesus has declawed him on the cross. Gender, Jesus has rendered him powerless. He is now as harmless as a kitty cat. The only way Satan can defeat you is if you allow him to strike fear in your heart and manipulate you and intimidate you. If you don't stand strong and follow Jesus, if you run in the opposite direction, you'll run straight into trouble. This is why we're told in verse 9, resist him steadfast in the faith. Don't run from Satan. Resist Satan. Stand up in the power of the Lord, in the name of Jesus. You see, to run, what do you have to do? You have to turn your back. And whenever you turn your back, you expose the only part of your anatomy that's not protected by your spiritual armor. Do you remember Ephesians chapter 6 that talks about our, our armor, the armor of the Lord? And he, he talks about the head of, helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the loins of peace and the belt of peace and, and on and on it goes. But there's one part of your anatomy that's not covered by the armor. It's your back. Because God expects you to resist Satan, not run from him. That's why if we run from him, we expose ourselves. We can't back down. We need to resist the devil, stand strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Trust in his name. 
rely on the blood of Christ. James 4 verse 7 tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Put up a resistance and Satan will be forced to flee. And persevere. Keep on keeping on. Don't grow tired or get discouraged. He says, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. When you start to get tired, think about Pastor Saeed in the Iranian prison tonight. Think about the Coptic Christians in Egypt who are being attacked and their churches burned and they're being martyred for the sake of Christ by the Muslim Brotherhood. Think of the other brothers throughout the world tonight that are suffering intense persecution. It'll give you a little bit more strength to carry on. We're not alone. Christians all over the world are experiencing worse things than us. We need to press on. Verse 10. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while. Now notice that. Compared to the glory awaiting us in heaven, even a lifetime of suffering is just a little while in Peter's estimation. He says, may the God of all grace perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And now, Peter has a few personal remarks to make. He says, By Salvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly. Salvanus is Silas. This was Paul's traveling companion in his second and third missionary journeys. Apparently, at the time, Silas was with Peter. And he possibly penned this leader, leader penned this letter as Peter dictated it to him. It seems to be the case. It was by Salvanus that Peter wrote, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. He says, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. It's possible that Peter was writing from the literal city of Babylon. Though we have no record of him ever going there. There are no legends associated with Peter being in Babylon. A better interpretation, I think, is to assume that here he's talking about the spiritual Babylon, which everyone at the time knew was Rome. Rome had become the capital of paganism. I believe Peter wrote this letter from Rome while he was in prison. And so he writes to this, these folks, and so does Mark, my son. You know, Peter had the same kind of relationship with John Mark as Paul did with Timothy. Mark was Peter's disciple. He was his young protege, his son in the faith. In fact, the early church fathers, including Irenaeus and Eusebius, they tell us that Mark's gospel was in reality the reflections of Peter recorded by the disciple Mark. I think that's interesting. Well, the letter ends. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Not a lustful kiss, not an erotic kiss, not a hypocritical Judas kiss, but a kiss of Christian love. Either a holy kiss or a hearty handshake is a wonderful gesture. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And there we have Peter's first epistle. 